Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. Today we're at the start of a new series about worship. It's called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. Over the next several weeks, John will be walking us through a set of lessons that remind us that we gather in congregations to receive the abundant gifts from our triune God, to be served by Him. Think of the anticipation of a child on Christmas Day. That's what John is unwrapping for us today as we eagerly anticipate what God has for us. Let's start things off with a message called, We Gather to be Served, Part 1. We're going to entitle this series, The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. True worship of God and knowledge of salvation were the heart and soul of the Reformation. That's a big statement that was written by Bruce Gordon in his great definitive biography of John Calvin. And what Calvin was trying to attempt to do in Geneva and also for the churches uh, throughout Europe and around the world. True worship of God was at the heart and soul of the Reformation. The knowledge of salvation and they're intertwined, they're inseparable. What is worship? Well, first of all, when we look at worship, the scriptures clearly teach that worship extends to all of the believer's life. For the Christian, worship is a way of life. Um, After spending the first 11 chapters rehearsing the glorious truths of the gospel uh, in the book of Romans, Paul's massive buildup for 11 chapters leads him in chapter 12, verse 1, to exhort believers to worship God with their entire lives. He says, uh, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. He has spent 11 chapters expositing for believers the mercies of God. And in light of the mercies of God, the gospel, he says, I appeal to you in light of that, therefore, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul teaches us that the gospel leads to doxology. The gospel leads to a life of worship. Worship is a way of life. It is an expression of gratitude to God in Christ by the Holy Spirit for who he is for what he has done for us and for our salvation. So we live lives of gratitude, expressing back to God our thanks. So so what does this life of worship look like as worship is a whole way of life? Well, Paul tells you in Romans 12 through 16, the the last five chapters of that book. In the final five chapters, Paul shows that those who have been justified, Romans 3 through 5, those who are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6 and 7, those who have been freed from all condemnation because of their justification, Romans 8, and are now, because of that, adopted sons of God awaiting the resurrection, and those who are assured of God's faithfulness to his covenant promise to complete their salvation, that's Romans 9 through 11, In light of all of that wonderful mercies, doctrine of God, gospel, Paul says this is how we respond with a life of worship and worship God. He says in Romans 12, we're to use our spiritual gifts to serve fellow believers. That's worship. He says that we are to provide for fellow believers who are in need or in affliction, being persecuted. That's worship. 
He says that we are to submit to governing authorities. That's an interesting passage for us right now in our country at this time. He says that we are to pursue a life of purity. He says that we are to love rather than judge weaker or stronger brothers in the body. Now that's interesting, isn't it? And then he says we are to greet one another in the body just as Christ has welcomed us. So those are some ways that we live a life of worship. So clearly, Paul is teaching that worship extends to all of one's life, which includes this, going to church. Worship also includes going to church. And even though worship is more than what takes place here on Sunday morning, week after week, worship is not less than that. Worship is what takes place on the Lord's day in God's gathered, visible community of believers. And in this series, we're going to come to see how vital that role of corporate worship plays in the life and discipleship, the formation of a Christian. So what we're going to focus on in this series is not really worship as a way of life, although I just showed you examples from how that is true. But what I want us to focus on in this series is specifically the Sunday church service. Why do we come to church and do what we do? It's called liturgy. Listen carefully. Every church has a liturgy. The question, is that liturgy good or bad, and does it help to form the believer in terms of centering their life on the triune God most clearly revealed in Christ, make them gospel-centered, and produce in their life sanctification and fruit? You see, because how we worship determines what we believe, and what we believe determines how we worship. We'll come back to that next week. All our lives are filled with liturgies. Everything about that we live is influenced and shapes how we think and how we act and how we behave. And so when you come to church on Sunday morning, the things that you do participating in corporate worship powerfully influences how you think and how you worship God and how you live the Christian life. It is a very, very powerful thing, liturgy. So we're going to come back to that next week. But this week, we just want to look, as I said, at some introductory matters. Like, Why do we go to church? Now, answers to these questions vary considerably. More often than not, worship... Why you come to church? You come to church to worship. And so worship is defined in terms of something we come to church to do or to give or to experience. Um, I just recently received an invitation from a church, and it had this advertisement, come to a night of worship. And by what, what they meant by that was come to a night of music and singing songs. And it said, this advertisement said, that through this night of worship, believers are promised the opportunity to, quote, experience a deeper encounter with the Lord. So that's one view of worship. And worship has come to mean music and singing of songs. 
I hear people today say, we're going to worship. Or they might ask after the church service, hey, how was the worship? And immediately, that is essentially defined by music. Music has become a synonym for worship. Now, I'll have much, much more to say about music as we go through this series. We're going we're to focus a whole message on music and its role in corporate worship in the church from the scriptures to see what the scriptures say is the role of music and worship. But the point I just am emphasizing now is this, is that the emphasis is on why we go to church is almost exclusively on our activity. What we do when we come to church. It's our activity. And so some examples are better than others. Um, Here's one of the worst examples that I've heard growing up in a Southern Baptist church. I was told this, that um, I I am coming to church to give God my best, which was always how you dress. So if, if, if you're coming, I see you guys smiling, yeah, I'm connecting with you, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You give God your best, so you deck it out and you look like a corporate CEO banker, right? Um, you put the suit on and you give God your best. Uh, someone once described me, uh, described corporate worship to me as this, John, we are to come together to, quote, minister to God. When, when they shared that with me, I mean, I, I didn't even know how to respond. Um, as if God somehow needs to be ministered to. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Even the word worship doesn't really adequately capture what happens together on the Lord's Day when God's people gather together like this to, to, to come to church. Because while worship involves our actions and attitudes, it does. We, we give praise, we give adoration, we give thanksgiving, we listen, we respond, we pray, we sing, we give petitions. So while worship involves all of those actions and attitudes, we have to understand that worship, first and foremost, is in terms of listen carefully. Worship is first and foremost to be understood in terms of God's service to us, rather than our service in actions toward God. This is what the early Reformed Anglican and Lutheran traditions coming out of the Reformation, this is why they called their church services the divine service. Have any of you guys, besides being a paramount in the past, have you ever heard of that phrase, the divine service? Why would these early evangelical Protestant believers say, hey, come to the divine service? You know, it just sounds so holy, like the divine service, you know. Uh, Why would they do this? It was called the divine service because they were trying to emphasize this point, that God, who is divine, comes to his people through the means of grace that he has instituted to give himself and his gifts to them. The emphasis is on God's activity. The divine service consists, yes, of God's service as well as our service. But before there is service and response or activity on our part, there is first God's service and work and activity on his part. 
This means that when we come together corporately as a church week after week, the primary, but not exclusive, but the primary emphasis on worship on Sunday is to be on God's activity, His service to us, rather than our activity, service, or response to Him or to our neighbor. So why then do we go to church? Why do we come together and gather on the Lord's Day week after week after week? We go to church primarily, though not exclusively, listen, to be served by our triune God, who is the gift giver, to receive his manifold gifts and blessings given to us in Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's a triune act. It's a triune God. Let me give you some passages that talk about God as being a supreme gift giver. Listen to uh, James as he writes on the goodness of God. James chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's a gift giver. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11 on the Sermon on the Mount as he speaks of his Father. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, you hear that? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He erupts into this spontaneous praise to God the Father, and he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That can literally be translated with every generous gift in the heavenly places. And so God is a gift giver. This triune, merciful God, perfectly revealed to us in his son Jesus, is a gift giver. And he delights in giving gifts to his people. And so the corporate worship of the church is a profound weekly encounter with the triune God and his manifold blessings and gifts to his people. That's why we come. God, the gift giver, comes to his gathered guests with numerous blessings, Paul says, from the heavenly places, from above, on high. And so then the primary emphasis of corporate worship is on God's gracious acts of service to needy sinners. We don't come to give God our best. Do you know what my best is? My sin. And that's what I come to give him. And I come to give him my sin so he can give me his grace. We are God's gathered guests called by grace for the opportunity to receive blessing, comfort, and gifts from the gift giver. That's why we come to corporate worship. And only after we have received those gifts, that comfort, that assurance from God himself, only then do we respond with obedience and gratitude and repentance and faith and praise and thanksgiving. You see, the scriptures teach this, that Jesus is not only our Lord, but he's also, listen, he is our servant. 
Have you ever thought about that? How often we confess Jesus is Lord. He's Corios. Yes, he is Lord. We do confess that. But how often do you also equally confess in your daily life or do you hear confessed in corporate worship to shape you, Jesus is your servant and he ever lives to serve you? Where do I get this from? Scripture. On the night of his betrayal and his abandonment by his disciples, Jesus stood among his needy disciples and he said this to them, I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus said this to his disciples, Luke says in verse 24, while his disciples were arguing amongst themselves as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be sitting at the right hand. I'm going to have the high. No, it's going to be me. And like, you know, they're just, about, they're just fighting and warring. Who's going to be the greatest? Filled with pride and arrogance, blind ambition. And Jesus announces this stunning lesson of divine service and grace to a bunch of needy sinners who are fighting with each other as to who will be the greatest. And Jesus says to you, do you want to know who the greatest is? It's me, because I am the servant of God, and I am your servant. I am among you as the one who serves. That is amazing grace. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not come to be served. He doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from him. In John chapter 13, Peter responding to Jesus with unrestrained emotional fervor, he says to Jesus, I love this, he says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. I'm so grateful for Peter because he's just always sticking his foot in his mouth, right? Blundering all over the place like, wow, there's hope for me. So here's a great blunder. Oh, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, what arrogance, right? So Jesus replies to Peter, John 13, 8, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. In other words, Jesus, unless Jesus serves us, Peter, if I can't serve you and take away your sin once and for all, and then Peter, continue to serve you throughout your entire life because, Peter, you're going to have subsequent sins that need to be washed away, Peter. If I can't wash you and be your servant, Peter, you can have no part of me and have no inheritance in the age to come. Oh, you want Jesus to wash your feet every day of your life. You want to sit down and let him put on a towel and serve you. You want that. In response to Martha, who Luke says was distracted with much serving, Luke 10.40, Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
What was the good portion that Mary chose? When Jesus comes to your house, stop working, sit down, and listen. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your service. You need his service. Mary chose the greater portion. I wonder how often Christ examines our worship and sees how we, like Martha, are distracted with our serving rather than first coming to sit at our Lord's feet and listen to what is being taught. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says to the men of Athens, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So when this individual said, John, you go to church to minister to God, apparently they didn't read Paul's address at the Areopagus in Athens. God doesn't need to be served by any man because he is the one who is wholly self-sufficient and gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. He makes it clear here that the true God does not live in temples like the Parthenon. I've been to the Parthenon. I stood there and looked at it, pagan temple. Paul is pointing to that, and he tells these pagan Athenians, God doesn't live there, and he's not served by the sacrifices that you take there regularly to this temple. He doesn't need your sacrifices. It doesn't add anything to him. And yet, how often is our worship, because we have this nearly exclusive emphasis on our activity, what we do for God, how often is like the Athenians who regularly sought to serve God by continually bringing sacrifices to their temples? So, we come to church as God's gathered guests called by grace to receive from the gift giver his good gifts to us in Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit. And then we respond with sacrifices of praise, with thanksgiving, with works of service to our neighbor, with a life of worship, as we saw at the beginning. Yet many churches today have the exclusive direction in the movement of worship from man to God. It's just what we do. It's what we do. It's what we do. And so the main emphasis is on our activity, and Sunday worship centers on our work rather than on the triune God's work for us. I just wonder how many of you have ever heard or understood that worship is to be the divine service where God comes as a great gift giver and he serves you week after week. Very few have ever heard of that. It's a tragedy. It's totally foreign in, 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 in a lot of evangelical churches today. In fact, in most churches, for, for a good bit, it's not even on the radar screen. We've developed this man-centered approach to worship, which is a direct opposite of what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that God comes to us on His terms and by His means. So I want to show you that really quick. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, 
both of the tabernacle and the temple, worship was always about God coming into the midst of his people on his terms and by his means. It was God coming to his people. And so the tabernacle and temple were in the center of the camp of Israel. And the whole camp was arranged around the centerpiece of the tabernacle or the temple. And both served as the center of their worship in relationship with God. And so we see that God's coming is based in this temple or tabernacle was based on grace. He never came as a response to Israel's acts of worship. In the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple, there was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat symbolized the presence of the Lord amongst his people, God coming to dwell amongst his people, just like the Garden of Eden, God dwelling in the midst of his people because the Garden of Eden was a garden temple. It was a temple. God dwelled there, and now God is coming back to dwell amongst his people. Thanks, John. You just heard a message called, We Gather to be Served, Part 1. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.